Uh, let's ask God to help us with his word. <coughs> uh, true and living God, uh, we pray in your great mercy that you would convince us this morning uh, that our hope is not in ourselves, uh, but only in you, our God. And what you have done for us in sending your Son, our Lord Jesus, into the world to die for us. Uh, please uh, convict us of the reality of our sin and of your goodness and the greatness of your provision for us in Christ. Help me to speak your word truthfully and clearly in my weakness and help us all to receive it and understand it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you can see, uh, we're going to share in the Lord's Supper this morning. And the Lord's Supper, let's face it, seems such a peculiarly Christian thing, doesn't it? Its meaning and purpose are not immediately apparent. You have to learn what the words and elements mean. Oh, yes, it's solemn and yet so simple. It's routine, part of the regular rhythm of church life, but never ordinary. Never ordinary because it contains within it the hope of the world. By celebrating the coming into being of what's called the new covenant through the words and actions of our Lord Jesus, who taking the cup, two weeks away did not improve my skills, right? Uh, who taking the cup that he shares, he shared the last meal with his followers before his crucifixion said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, the new covenant promised, as you heard, in Jeremiah 31. Now, saying the Lord's Supper contains the hope of the world. That is the hope for all people at all times in every place. Hope for you is a big claim. Now, I've got it yeah, there. I actually turned it on. Uh, you might think it's an inflated claim, especially for something that seems so plain, so unspectacular. So, let me justify it this morning as we look at Jeremiah 31, the passage at the heart of Jeremiah's prophecy that we did not look at when we went through Jeremiah. And there are going to be three parts to this justification that in the Lord's Supper we have the hope of the world. It contains the hope of the world. Three parts. Firstly, the world's problem, both as it's experienced by us and spoken about in the story of Israel, of the Jewish people. We have to grasp the problem. And secondly, what God actually promises in Jeremiah 31 and how it addresses that problem. And thirdly, how Jesus says that what is promised is inaugurated, brought to be a present experience by his death. And then hopefully having justified my claim that this meal contains within it the hope of the world, what that means for believers sharing in the supper. Now that this world, and especially human society, has a problem is pretty obvious. We see on our TV screens and news feeds terrible violence, Israel, Ukraine. We witness hatred even on our own streets. In this society that has so much there are reports of homelessness and growing inequality. On many experience trauma 
in their most intimate relationships. According to Angela Shanahan, writing in uh, The Australian, the Australian Bureau of Statistics says that there are 1.36 female deaths from domestic violence each week, 71 per year. Shocking. And many are deeply unhappy, despairing, just as shocking as the rates of domestic violence is the rate of male suicide. Shanahan reports that there are 47 male deaths by suicide per week, 2,777 per year. Now, I could go on multiplying uh, the evidence for the fact that not all is right with our world, with human society, but I don't need to, do I? Because you know it. Whether amongst or in nations or in our homes or in our hearts, rent by competing desires, fears and anxieties, there is conflict and grief. And what peace we do know is transitory and superficial. Now, why? Why is the problem? Why is humanity with all its beauty and what's the problem? Uh, why is humanity, with all its beauty and possibility, the way it is? Now, to answer that, I want to take you back to the Scripture's big story. Now, some of you will be very familiar with it, and for some of you it might be new. And it is a big story with lots of details, but this morning I just want to sketch its outline. And I want to do that for three reasons. Firstly, because we are creatures, individually and collectively, in time. And so it's in our stories that we link the past to the present and locate ourselves and find explanations for our present. Uh, if we're not to be lost, left without a sense of who we are and where we're going, uh, we need to locate ourselves in some story, whether that's of our lives or our family or our nation or of humanity. And secondly, in a world of competing stories, the Bible story is the true story that includes us all. It can genuinely tell us who we are, what we're here for, and where we're going. Now, I can't argue that in detail now, uh, but I suggest in the transcript three ways that you can test the truthfulness of these stories, and I'm happy to talk about it uh, later. But there's a third reason I want to sketch the big story, and that's that sometimes those of us who know it can lose sight of it. You know, we're tired, our mind's full of present needs and demands, and we can feel as if our life is going nowhere, feel disconnected, distant from our place in this story, which gives us an identity and purpose, which we once felt keenly but no longer do. It's good for us to be reminded of the big story and of its truth that exists regardless of how we're feeling, how tired or perplexed by life we may be. So what explanation does Scripture's big story give for the way we are? And more importantly, how does the promise we heard in Jeremiah 31 offer hope for a messed up humanity, the only hope? Well, the Bible's big story starts, as many of you know, with God creating the world, a world that's very good, containing everything needed for human flourishing. But then the mess starts with Adam and Eve, the first humans, given a command by God who has created them not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
And also, having been warned by God of the consequences of disobedience, death, Adam and Eve do exactly the opposite. They eat because they think their lives will be better if they consume, incorporate into themselves the knowledge of good and evil. That is, claim for themselves the right to decide for themselves what is good and evil, right and wrong. Oh, and they eat because they also believe the devil's lie, that God wasn't telling them the truth when he said death would follow its eating. Oh, and when he said that such a power to decide right and wrong for themselves would make them godlike. And it seems such a little thing, doesn't it, eating the fruit? But it wasn't. It was turning the world upside down. See, they've chosen death in the place of life. They've founded their lives on a lie, not truth. They've chosen now to love created things rather than their creator who's given them all good. They have substituted their finite wisdom for God's. In effect, they put the creature now in the place of the creator in his world and from that time, the life, their life and their descendants' life is guided by their own judgment of what's right and wrong, not God's word. And they and their descendants are forever suspicious of God's goodness, power and rule. And what we see in the big story is consequences flow from that, not just the death that God said would follow on from their disobedience, the death that now characterises all our lives. We are mortal. And so all our lives are marked with incalculable grief. No other consequences. The consequences of the choices they made, particularly the choice to love and please themselves above all. So that pretty soon in the pages of the big story in the Bible, we get the world we know today. It starts with family violence. Cain kills his brother Abel. And that soon escalates to the use of disproportionate violence that we know so well to ensure we get our own way and protect our pride. Lamech boasts, I killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's avenged seven times over, then for Lamech it will be 77 times. In fact, by Genesis 6, God can say that the whole earth is full of violence and the judgment of the flood doesn't fix things. Straight after the flood, there's dysfunction in families, Ham shaming his father Noah and Noah cursing Ham's son Canaan. And that all climaxes with humanity seeking to displace God, to access heaven on their terms by building a tower into the heavens, a story which finishes with humanity divided unable to understand each other, distrusting each other. And that's us, where we're determined, each of us, to love our own rule, to want to have our world organised to please us. We live in a world divided, distant from God, with repeated breakdown in our closest relationships and a frequent resort to violence. Where every descendant of Adam has inherited the desire to, well, to be the God of their own lives and live by their own rules, it's a mess, as many of you know from personal experience. But the big story is not just the story of humanity. It's 
The big story, the story that encompasses all time and all creation because it's the story of the creator God. And in response to humanity's rebellion and the misery and grief and injustice it brings, he acts by choosing a man, Abraham, and making promises to him. Promises that his descendants would become a great nation of blessing and of Abraham's descendants becoming a source of blessing for all. All the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. Now with these promises, the Lord God is acting to re-establish life in the place of death, blessing in the place of judgment, and God is faithful to his promises. When Israel, the nation of Abraham's descendants, are oppressed and enslaved by the Egyptians, God acts to deliver them and bring them into their own land and to establish them in relationship to himself. With mighty acts, the plagues of Egypt, he brings Israel out of Egypt, destroying their enemies, and then before he brings them into the land he promised them, he formalises his relationship with the whole people at a mountain called Sinai where he makes a covenant with them. Now at Sinai, the people hear God's voice itself. He speaks with them and gives them his law. And he commits himself to be their God, to provide and protect for them as their king. And they commit themselves to be his people, to live by his word. When the covenant scrolls read, they say, we will do and obey all that the Lord has commanded. And it's called a covenant, this Relationship, because that's a term that was used at that time for a treaty between a king and a subject people. And it consists of words, the promises and commands of God and requires the response of faith and obedience in his people. And it's a solemn agreement sealed by blood, indicating death is the consequence of breaking it. Moses took the blood, splattered it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you concerning all these words. And so from that time on for Israel, there's life and blessing in keeping the covenant and curse and death in abandoning it. Having formalised the relationship between himself and his rescued people in this covenant, God then, as he promised, brings Israel into his land, the land of Canaan, the land flowing with milk and honey. Now stop and think for a moment of Israel's circumstances when they enter that land. They're secure, aren't they? Because the Lord God's fighting for his people. They're in a great environment, one that can provide all their needs. They have good and just laws to govern their life together, the envy of their neighbours. And so as a nation, they have everything that's needed for peace and flourishing to succeed and grow and you could think at this stage this is going to be a happily ever after story. People rescued from oppression going on to flourish. You would think that, wouldn't you, that Israel knowing both God's power and his favour and his grace would just get on and enjoy life, do what's needed to keep on enjoying peace, plenty and freedom. But here's the thing. If you know this story, you know that the big story in the big story, the history of Israel over centuries is just a history of grievous stuffing up, of doing exactly the opposite of what God commanded and experiencing the consequences. 
And that history of failure, failure to live by the covenant starts early, doesn't it? They're at Sinai. God has just told them not to worship other gods and they go and worship the golden calf. Oh, God brings them into the promised land and they go and start worshipping the local gods, not the Lord their God. Oh, yes, and they experience the judgment of foreign invaders as God warned them and God repeatedly delivers them, but each time they go back to worshipping other gods. And God then finally gives them a good king, David, who can establish and does establish peace. And his son Solomon then introduces the worship of all sorts of gods and David's kingdom gets split in two and idolatry is institutionalised in the northern kingdom. Over the centuries, the people who had received God's good law kept breaking. The people who committed to be faithful to the Lord in the covenant kept on being unfaithful, giving their worship to other gods. And over those centuries, well, God kept sending them prophets to warn them of the consequences of their rebellion. He kept on appealing for them to turn back. Oh, yeah, he let them suffer anticipatory judgments to bring home to them that the warning of final judgment of losing the land was real. He kept on showing them mercy and great patience, but they did not change. And so we come to the prophet Jeremiah's place in the big story. And as we've seen when we went through Jeremiah, Jeremiah warned the people of Judah over and over again that unless they turned back to God and abandoned the worship of their idols, they would suffer the same fate as their brethren in the northern kingdom had already suffered. They would lose everything that gave them their identity, that sustained their life. They'd lose king and priest, temple and city, their land and their lives. But they refused to change. In fact, they showed themselves incapable of change. So invested were they in their sin and lies that Jeremiah said, Can the Cushite change his skin or a leopard his spots? If so, you might be able to do what's good. You who are instructed in evil. Jeremiah is saying that they could only change the way they behave if they could change their nature. So entrenched are they in their sin, something not in their power. And as we know, the story goes on, not heeding God's warnings, not repenting, they lost everything. Despite good laws, good rules for living, despite a great environment, despite material prosperity, Israel, the descendants of Jacob, could not do what was needed to live at peace. They couldn't practice justice and righteousness. They wouldn't be faithful to the Lord. And it wasn't for lack of telling or warning of examples of what would follow their disobedience. It wasn't for lack of time to change. It's just that they were determined to keep doing things their way, ignoring the living God, disregarding and despising his word. Like Adam and Eve, thinking they knew better than God did, thinking he would not do what he had said he would do. They loved the rule of their own lives more than life itself. And by the time you get to Jeremiah, it would seem that 
stubborn determination to follow their own way, that hard heart will finally destroy them and prove God, no matter how patient, unable to restore order to his creation, unable to undo the impact of the devil's lie and bring life in the place of death. By this stage, it looks like their failure will ensure God's failure. Now, that's a tragic and despairing conclusion. And you think, you think, well, if God's got to just might as well give up. Or, or maybe try another people. Or perhaps some other people group will be more responsive than those Jews. But if you think that, and some do, you would have missed the point of Israel's history, of their role in the big story entirely. You see, they are children of Adam, just like us. And in the big story, they are us in the best circumstances. They had God-given laws, not man-made laws. They had relationship with the true God based on his revealing of himself to them. They're not left worshipping their own creations or wandering about in ignorance of God, working with best guesses. And as us under the best circumstances, they still fail to know and embrace what makes for peace with God our creator, what makes for life. And the point is that their failure is our failure. Their inability is our inability. For their stubbornly disobedient heart is our heart. Their history is given to reveal the human heart to us, the heart we all share and which is the source of our destructive actions, a heart from Adam that determinedly turns away from God to love our own rule of our lives instead. Their history is given to reveal the desperation of our situation where we have that same determination that can't be cured by better laws, better education, better economic circumstances. And if you doubt that's our heart, well, think for a moment of modern Australia. As a nation, we've got a Christian heritage, had Christian revelation. We've enjoyed unprecedented peace and prosperity. We have access to a great education. Now, has it made us good, grateful? Do we have a society where marriages stay together, children respect their parents, a public life that acknowledges the true God? Do we value and protect all human life? Do we privilege truth? On our airways? Do we shun greed, protect the weak from exploitation of the greedy by porn or gambling? We've got the same heart. Think of your own life. We all of ourselves share the heart of Israel, of Adam. And that heart means we repeatedly disobey God, repeatedly know what is right and fail to do it, whether that's turning off the computer when we should, or listening to our parents, 
or just speaking a kind word and not the word that condemns or provokes. We've got the same heart. And we can't change our hearts from love of self to love of our creator. And we also can't undo the past wrong we have done in pursuing our desires. So we can't find peace. Israel's history to the time of Jeremiah in the big story actually proves the truth of Paul's conclusion about us all. There's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away the path of peace. They have not known. And at this point in the big story, in Jeremiah's generation, where the tragic consequences of human choices and the inability of the human heart are so starkly revealed in the destruction of Jerusalem, at this point in the big story, we are reminded again that this is not just a human story, but the story of God. For is it at this point that we hear Jeremiah's prophecy of the new covenant, a promise that gives hope beyond failure, hope in God, not in ourselves. Look, the days are coming, says the Lord when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. At some indefinite time in the future, God promises Abraham's descendants, Israel and Judah, to make a new covenant with his people, to have a new kind of relationship with them. And it's needed because, verse 32, they have, as we've seen, proved unable to keep the covenant made at Sinai. And you can feel a a little of the grief and disappointment of that failure in the Lord's words, can't you? He had shown them grace, leading them gently, taking their hand like a parent, taking their child away from danger. Oh, he had shown them faithful commitment. Thy and their master can also be translated, though I was a husband to them, yet they had rejected him in rejecting his covenant word. And so the Lord in his dealings with Israel has known all the grief of a betrayed husband, which means he's he's not making this new covenant because Israel deserve a second chance or because there's anything attractive in them. No, he's making this new covenant with them because, as he said at the beginning of the chapter, he has loved them with an everlasting love. But this new covenant will not be new in terms of the content of what God requires of his people. It is still, verse 33, his teaching, his law, his Torah written on their hearts. And so he's not accommodating his standards of justice and righteousness to their inability to keep them. No. The new covenant is new in God committing himself to enable his people to keep his covenant. It's new in its power to deal with human failure. And there are three parts to what's promised. Firstly, God says, I will put my teaching within them and write it on their hearts. At Sinai, there the covenant, the law, God's Torah, was actually written on tables of stone, wasn't it? It was external to the person. But now it will be radically internalised. It becomes part of the person for the heart is the willing, thinking, feeling core of the person. 
And the law written on their heart means God's values and ways will always be present in the heart to guide and direct behaviour and thought. So God's law, by his new covenant, people won't be rejected in favour of their own determination of right and wrong and it won't be forgotten, it won't be left behind. It will be there to guide and direct them. A heart with the law written on it is a new heart, a heart that listens to and is directed by God's word. And when he gives the new heart, God also promises a real relationship between himself and those in the new covenant. I will be their God, he says, and they will be my people. Now, there is tremendous blessing and privilege in knowing you are the people of the living God, in being able to say of God, he is our God and we are his people. Let's think about this briefly. So firstly, there's confidence in his protection. The confidence they expressed in Psalm 23 of being able to say, the Lord is my shepherd. Or the confidence expressed in Psalm 121 of being able to say, my help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. The Lord who never slumbers or sleeps, who's always on the job to protect and keep his people. It's wonderful privilege to be assured of that protection. Oh, and there's the comfort of being able to rely on the Lord's steadfast love, of being able to say like the author of Lamentations, even when things are at their worst, because of the Lord's faithful love, we do not perish, for his mercies never end. They are new every morning. Great is your faith. Protection, love, and yes, those who are the Lord's people can hope. Hope in God, for God is the God of life, not God of the dead, but of the living, the God for whom nothing is impossible, not even life from the dead. To be able to say, because God has said we are his people, that he is our God, is life and peace. And this is not just a a corporate relationship, a relationship between God and a people. No, it's an individual relationship, verse 34. No longer will one teach his neighbour or his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least to the greatest of them. In the new covenant, each one of God's people will know God, the living God, have direct and immediate access to him for themselves, each one individually can know that security, love, that security, love and hope as their own. And they will be secure. For thirdly, God promises forgiveness of sin, forever forgiveness. For I will forgive their iniquity and never again remember their sin. And it's on this forgiveness that the certainty of the fulfilment of the first two promises depends. And what's promised here is forgiveness for all sin, all that disobedience that provokes God's judgment, the disobedience that, for example, drove Israel from his presence, all forgiven in this new covenant. And God promises that for those in the new covenant, their sin will never again become an issue in their relationship with him forever. That's what never again remember their sin 
means. It's not saying God's become forgetful that our security relies on him having a kind of increasing senility, right? It's not saying that he's ignorant of what we do or have done. The Lord is promising never to call our sin to mind, to become a factor in his dealings with those in the new covenant. He's saying that when he thinks of us, our sin will never be there in the picture. The promise of the new covenant is a wonderful promise. God is promising to provide all that sinful Israel needs for the relationship, for a relationship with the living God a new heart to do his will, forever forgiveness of sin, a personal consciousness of relationship. But remember, Israel's heart is our heart. And so Israel's need is actually humanity's need, if any are to live at peace with him. And so God is promising here what all must have and only he can provide. For there is no relationship possible without God giving what he promises here, forgiveness, a heart to love him, committed relationship. And the Lord is committing himself and all his glory and might to bring this about. It's all about what he will do. I will put my teaching, I will be their God I will forgive their iniquity. This promise of the new covenant is the hope of the world, of all humanity, the only hope at living, for living at peace with our creator. And it is this promise that Christ says he fulfills by his death. In the Last Supper, in the words we hear, every Lord's Supper, This is my body, which is for you. This cup is a new covenant in my blood. The Lord Jesus says that the great deliverance his death will achieve achieve, will make possible, will bring into being this new covenant relationship with God and that those who believe in him, who trust his words of promise spoken over the bread and the cup and eat and drink with faith, are included now in God's new covenant people. See, remember the first covenant came into being as the result of a great deliverance God achieved by triumphing over the Egyptians who held his people in bondage. Well, this new covenant will come into being by an even greater deliverance. For on the cross, our Lord Jesus, by his death, destroys the one who has the power of death, the devil, and sets free all those who lived in fear of death. And on the cross, Scripture says, the Lord Jesus triumphs over all spiritual powers, all the demonic idols that hold sway over human lives. He shows them to be powerless to stop God reconciling his people to himself. And the Lord Jesus, in his death, inaugurates the new covenant. For his death is the sacrifice that brings forgiveness forever. As the author of Hebrews says, reflecting on the sacrifices of the old covenant, Jesus' death. His shed blood is so much more 
powerful. It can cleanse our consciences, wash them clean from dead works and their guilt so that we can serve the living God. He has become by his death the mediator of a new covenant because, well, his death has redeemed us from our transgressions committed under the first covenant. That is, it has set us free from the penalty of the law so there is no more debt to the law to pay. Forgiven. He has removed our sin by the sacrifice of himself. Now, the author doesn't explain so much how Jesus' death removes our sin. But what he's doing is proclaiming the fact that Jesus' death has removed our sin, has removed the guilt and defilement of our sin from his people and so secured for them inclusion in God's promised new covenant. It's by this forgiveness that comes through Christ's sacrifice of himself that we are cleansed and so become fit places for the Holy Spirit to dwell, the Spirit who gives us that new heart that delights to do God's will. Oh, it's by Jesus' death in our place that we're reconciled to God, that we can be the people of whom God says, they are my people, and so who can say each of us, the living God, Father, Son and Spirit is our God, committed to us forever in covenant relationship. It is by Jesus' death, the death of the Son of God, that God himself does what he has promised. It's all of him. He brings his saved people into the new covenant. And in Christ, the only hope of people is seen to be a hope not just for Abraham's physical descendants to whom that promise was first addressed, but for all people everywhere, all who will repent and believe the gospel, (coughs) whatever their race or language or culture, all are now included by faith in the gospel that Christ has died for our sins and been raised to reign in God's new covenant people. And in proclaiming the coming into being of the new covenant by the death of our Lord Jesus, this meal that we will share in also proclaims every time we share it the victory of God. Despite how it seemed in the history of Israel, the living God is not defeated by the devil's lies, not defeated by humanity's stubborn commitment to its own sovereignty or our enslavement to our desires. This meal says our failure does not mean his failure. He will have his people and all humanity will be blessed in Abraham's descendant, Jesus. This meal says in God's creation, his blessing will prevail. His good order will be established over his creation. Life will triumph over death. And it is all his work. I will write. I will be their God. I will forgive, he said. And he has fulfilled his commitment in the giving of his son. And he has done it because he loves. For no other reason. Because he loves his people freely with an everlasting love. 
The Lord's Supper is never ordinary for those who believe the gospel. Here in eating and drinking with faith, we're assured that the Lord Jesus by his death has included you and I as we receive with faith himself offered to us in the bread and cup that he has included you and I in God's new covenant people, given us a share in the only hope for the world. And that's worth pausing, isn't it? Month by month to reflect on. And it's worth making the effort every time we come to the table to lift our minds from our day-to-day preoccupations to engage wholly with what we are doing. To remember as we receive the bread and the cup that we are the Lord's people and to remember the privilege of that. The privilege of being secure in his protection. Of saying our help is in the Lord. (laughs) The, The privilege of knowing that whatever trial we face, the Lord is our good shepherd. Oh, the privilege of being confident in his steadfast love, which will never fail and from which nothing will separate us. The privilege of being assured of our hope, for the Lord reigns and our sin forgiven will never force us from his presence forever. And remembering our privilege to be renewed in thankfulness for our Saviour that should not only mark our lives, but can sustain us in all our trials. And sharing in the supper is also time to be renewed in our commitment to live as his people. For only those who have God's law written on their hearts are God's new covenant people, a people resolved to live in the obedience of faith and who have a godly grief when they fall short. It's because we are God's new covenant people that we exhort you month by month to examine your lives before coming to the supper. It's not setting you a test you have to pass before you eat and drink. It's to give you an opportunity in your busy lives to remember who you are, believer, and to ask whether you are living as God in his grace has made you to be. The people with new hearts that will to do God's will, to check whether or not you're drifting into ways of living where love of God and love of neighbour are not determining all you do and say and to stop that drift as those are sure to forgive and then keep living as you've been saved to be, living that life of love and forgiveness that pleases our God. In proclaiming that Christ through his death has brought into being the new covenant, This meal contains and holds out the hope, the only hope of the world. And in eating and drinking with faith, we know now its reality. Our sins forgiven, at peace, sharing a meal with the Son of God at his table the gift of God who said when all seemed lost, our failure complete, I will put my teaching within them and write it on their hearts. I will be their God for I will forgive their iniquity and never again remember their sin. And what he said he has done through his son.
Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, uh, we confess that of ourselves our heart is the heart of Adam. We turn away from trusting you. We would rather trust ourselves and do what pleases us. Do it even though that we know so often it brings harm. But we thank you that you have called us to hear the gospel of your son and opened our eyes to see his glory that the Lord Jesus is God with us, saving us through his death and bringing us to belong to your new covenant people. We praise you and thank you that we can say that you are our God and that we, trusting Jesus, can live our lives relying on your protection to keep us, your steadfast love to endure all our lives and beyond and relying on you to fulfil the hope you have promised for us to raise us from the dead. We praise you, our God of great and steadfast love and mercy and we praise you for your son. In his name, amen.